Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is Seth Green. He's an eight-time best-selling author. He's an entrepreneur, and he has a podcast with the original Shark Tank shark, Kevin Harrington. So, Seth, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here and uh, share with your audience. Yeah, for sure. You know, one of the the things that stuck out about your your background is you you do a YouTube show with your daughter. How's that? Yes, we're actually delayed. We haven't done that in a while. We've been slacking. <laughs> I think we got up to like episode 88. Yes, that was the Ella and Daddy show where we talked about, she's 11 now, and we talked about marketing. It started out as I was doing a challenge with Russell Brunson from ClickFunnels and Russell Brunson said, you got to publish every day. So you got to do something. So I started doing a show by myself and it was the first nine rules for financial, for marketing for direct response marketing. And then when I got like rule number three, I was upstairs and recording it in my bedroom, upstairs at home instead of at the office. And Ella came upstairs and crashed the episode and just joined in. And then all of a sudden she kept showing up every day and people started commenting on her, not me. <laughs> so it became the Ella and Daddy show as opposed to, you know, the Seth marketing show. Yeah. And then now my wife does, is one of the top 100 mommy bloggers her book just came out on Amazon at number two. And she does a weekly show called Whiny Palooza Wednesdays okay. about the blog and about parenting three very active little children. So Ella does the theme song and the outro song for that. So she's getting involved all over the place. <laughs> so, I mean, 88 episodes, is, I don't call that slacking. That's pretty good. Well, I'm slacking because we haven't done one in a little while because... I've been, because she's been on my wife's show every week and I'm, we, we've got such a backlog of podcast guests for our show that I'm probably recording a couple a day. Yeah. So when I'm done for the day, I don't, she's been really busy before COVID hit and now she's got a million Zooms every day as opposed to going to activities. So I haven't been going every day because we're publishing every day anyway. Yeah. I haven't been going, honey, we got to do another episode, but we really should at least get to a hundred. So thank you for reminding me. <laughs> so okay so publishing every day you're, you're publishing like every every hour it sounds like well we don't air that often but yes i think we're we've got episodes in the can until like august we're way <laughs> ahead and we may have to start airing them at we air three times a, we went from airing once a week to three times a week to yeah. keep up we may have to air every day for like a month or two just so that we get caught up so yeah. that we're not interviewing people that we say hey thanks for being on the show we'll air your show in three months yeah, you know, I actually had to cut cut down that as well because uh, I feel bad if it's like letting someone uh, wait that long to air. Uh, so I know what you're talking about. So, I mean, you mentioned sort of producing content every day. I mean, for the person that doesn't understand that, what do you say to them about the value of publishing every day or at least doing it a few times a week? So for our clients where we do our done-for-you podcasting services for them, we tell them to air once a week because the average business owner can get their head around that. They can say, oh, I can do half an hour once a week. I can skip Game of Thrones. I can skip American Idol on Zoom. 
I can do once a week and everybody yeah. gets that. And then we have our ambitious, more ambitious clients who will say, hey, can I do more often? And we say, yes, of course. So value of publishing every day, you're in front of more people more often. So your audience will grow. I mean, the more often that you publish. So if you air once a week, you might have a certain level of fan base and we'll call that fan base X. But sure. you might get to Y or Z if you publish more often because people are, I mean, there is more content being produced every day on YouTube in a day now that was aired in the history of network television. <laughs> and if you think about that, 80% of that is junk. No offense to a lot of people, but I don't need another Elsa and Spider-Man run around the backyard video, which I, you can tell I have little kids, right? So, or I don't need my son's 13. He's a gamer. I'm like, you spend hour all day because you're home now yeah. all day either playing video games or watching videos of other people play yeah you know in my day there was no internet there was no videos of other people play you had to figure everything out yourself yeah so now he can play along with the game as he watches someone else do what he's doing two seconds later so i would say the world is starving for good quality content so they need you and will reward you for it if you'll do it okay so so when when you're trying to advise someone what good quality content is and their idea of is putting out their brochure or doing their sales pitch. I mean, how do you how do you sort of change their mind or give them feedback on on what great content looks like for the end user? And it doesn't have to be great. So let me correct myself. It just has to be good enough. Yeah. You know, it doesn't. I'll t- my wife edited her book three times. Yeah. And she wanted to edit it a fourth. I'm like, just put it out. But there might be typos. I'm sh- honey. I've read New York Times bestsellers that still have typos. No one's gonna not buy it because of that. You're not gonna get any bad reviews. Just help people. So I would say it doesn't have to be great. It has to be good enough. And I would say it shouldn't be about you. Your content should be about your customer, your client, your prospect. They should be the hero. It should all be about them. So all of our podcasts are about the people we interview. All of my marketing videos are tips and tricks to help our people out there grow their businesses. So none of it is about me. None of it is about how fabulous we are or how wonderful I am. It's all about our client because, again, it's the whole no like, and trust factor. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So if you all you do is talk about yourself, think of it as going to a networking event. If you walked into BNI or the Chamber of Commerce and you just walked around, handed out a business card, hi, nice to meet you, buy my stuff. Hi, nice to meet you, buy my stuff. You'd probably get kicked out of the party relatively quickly, right? Yeah. yeah. Nobody wants to be that guy. But <laughs> think about it. If Facebook is the backyard barbecue yeah. and you're sitting around six feet apart, Drinking your, your not Corona, that's a bad word now. <laughs> Drinking your whiskey and sure. having a burger and some stranger jumps into the party, steals meat off your grill and goes, buy my stuff. Somebody's going to punch him out. But we have no problem acting like that is when we market our business. And we have to realize if you want to be a welcome guest instead of an uninvited pest, you've got to make it all about them because everybody's favorite radio station is WIFM. What's in it for me? Yeah, that makes sense. So just not to uh, transform into that guy when you get behind a keyboard. Or a camera. Yeah. So, I mean, there's lots of people starting to do podcasts now. I mean, what do you say to someone that's saying, well, how do you stand out? So that's a great question. Podcast is the new radio. They're trying to replace traditional FM radio. Joe Rogan just signed a $100 million deal to take his podcast exclusively to Spotify. I mean, that's insane. I mean, that's bigger than T. That's like Howard Stern money or TV money. So it just goes to show you the power of a podcast and having a media platform. So how do you stand out? I don't know that you're gonna. I don't know. It it depends. So if you're, I don't think you should be trying to stand out. You're not going to be 
and depending on, unless you've already got the following, you're not going to be Joe Rogan. You're not going to be Tim Ferriss or Tony Robbins. They were famous before the podcast. And they just took their listeners and their viewers and their event attendees and their book readers to their podcast platform. So they're not a good example unless you're already famous. I would say the goal isn't to be famous. You're not going to be number one on iTunes or new and noteworthy. The goal is to get your podcast in front of a small micro niche target market of the right listeners who are your ideal clients, customers, or prospects. One of our most, I mean, I started my show and we landed our first client off of my show when I had nine listeners and four of them worked for me. (laughs) And it was one of the guests, the one guest on the first episode said, oh, that was cool that you put me on a podcast. Let's talk about that. And I said, okay, I guess we got to figure that out. (laughs) And we had our first podcasting client was a golf coach and he was doing golf lessons in person in a local market at 75 bucks an hour. And he landed his first $50,000 client for golf coaching is a fortune 500 CEO from someone he interviewed on his podcast about fortune 500 CEOs in golf. And literally it was like the episode number two. I don't think they had more than 10 or 15 listeners. So it's not about growing. You know, I want 10,000 downloads a week. What good is that really going to do you? If 9,990 of them aren't going to buy from you, just focus on the 10 people who are. Yeah, that's a very good perspective. Now, you have a very strong direct response background. I guess you were recognized by Dan Kennedy as well. What sort of uh, things have you learned in the direct response world that you pull into your business? I mean, our entire business is based on direct response marketing. We could probably spend three days, 12 hours a day and not run out of topics. Yeah, yeah. So I would, I'll give you a couple. Sure. I would say the biggest marketing sin is being boring. Mm. talks about how are you going to stand out? Well, if you're a financial advisor and you work at Morgan Stanley and I take off the Morgan Stanley logo from your brochure and put on a Merrill Lynch logo and everything is factually the same, then you're boring. The prospect (laughs) can't tell the difference, right? What's the difference between Home Depot and Lowe's? I have no idea. I know the other day Lowe's had a shorter line, which so we went there because Home Depot, the line was too long, but I couldn't tell you the difference. They're not standing out from each other. So how, I would say, don't be boring. How are you going to stand out? Who's, and, and you start determining that by determining who's your target market. If you could only work with one group of people for the rest of your career, and you would not only see them professionally, but you'd also see them personally and socially, who would you want to have give you money that you would like to hang out with as well? So is that baby boomer hunters with money? Is that left-wing liberals who give to the Sierra Club? Is that middle-aged women who just got divorced? Who do you want to hang out with and have pay you really well and then build your podcast and your business around serving or rebuild it around serving just those people and it'll skyrocket? Mm. You can't be all things to all people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you want to create a little bit of separation between your company brand and the podcast brand to maintain credibility? Or is aligning those two really close together better? I don't know if it's a credibility issue. I think it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. If the podcast is, let's, let's say you had, let's say we have six different marketing services we offer. Mm-hmm. And I was going to launch a podcast about one of those services. Yeah. Then the podcast would probably be named the name of the service. If I was using a podcast to promote my entire marketdominationllc.com brand, then maybe the podcast would be called Market Domination. In our case, I co-host two shows and we produce, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of others for our clients. But I produce, I co-host Sharkpreneur with Kevin from Shark Tank. Yeah, yeah. 
So that brand is based on his Chartrepreneur, which he owned before we did, before we owned it together. So it was specifically around attracting the people who, the entrepreneurs who watch Shark Tank to watch or consume our show. And then we also co-host another show together called Startup Millionaires, which is around a specific product, a direct newsletter that people pay to subscribe to, to mm-hmm. learn about the latest startups that are crowdfunded equity that they can invest in that will make them a millionaire. We're not giving investment advice on this show. Full disclaimers apply. But that show is specifically branded to one product and the only product it sells, whereas Sharkpreneur is overarching to attract. We're trying to get the entrepreneurs who watch Shark Tank who want to grow their businesses and want capital to come watch our show. Mm, okay. So so with uh, how'd you hook up with uh, Kevin? I kidnapped him. <laughs> Now you laugh, but it's actually true. I, I went to, I, he was the, the Northeast Regional Conference for yeah. Entrepreneurs Organization that he co-founded with Michael Dell, was, happened to be in Buffalo about six or seven years ago. And I didn't know what EO was, but I knew a huge fan of Shark Tank, knew who Kevin was. I moved all my meetings. I spent 300 bucks to buy a ticket. I went, saw him speak, back of the room. He's signing autographs of his new book, taking selfies. I waited in line for my turn and I said, I'm a marketing guy. I can't take a selfie. I can't ask for an autograph. Everybody's doing that. I have to stand out. I have to do something different. This is pre-Uber. So I said, Mr. Harrington, I'm here to take you to the airport. And he said, oh, that's okay. I'll take a cab. And I said, no, they insist. I'm supposed to take you to the airport. (laughs) And he said, okay. He said, I got a meeting right after I finished signing autographs. Why don't you come to the meeting with me? You can sit on the side of the, of the conference room. You can be a fly on the wall. Watch me work. And then you can take me to the airport. Yeah. And I said, I'm in. Yeah. So my wife frantically said, you better go clean your car. Like, <laughs> we have three little kids. She's like, get all the crap into the trunk so he doesn't sit on goldfish or spill milk or anything. So I said, I had to go to the bathroom. I cleaned my car. I drove very slow to the airport which he does not know in Buffalo, it, takes 30, it does not take 30 minutes to get there. <laughs> I, I drove very slow, so I had more time to pitch. He liked my pitch. He said, okay, send me whatever it is that you want to send me about what you just said. That sounds good. I sent him a shock and awe box. He said, yes. That's how we started working together doing marketing for SCNONTV.com, the infomercial brand he built. And then he sold that company and hired us to work on other companies in his portfolio that he owned equity in. So we started marketing his portfolio companies. And then he's, he has a live event three times a year called Pitch Tank, which is a yeah. live version of Shark Tank, which he hired us to market and fill the room of investors who wanted to watch pitches live and be sharks. And then it, one of the, so then he asked me to be a judge on the panel and help judge the companies. And then a couple, two years ago, we were having dinner before the event. And he said, what's the coolest thing you're doing right now? And I said, it's our done for you podcast into authority, make your grow your business plan, grow your business service. And he said, oh, that's awesome. I want a podcast. I don't want to do any work. <laughs> and I said, that's the whole point of our service. You can have a show and grow your business without doing any work except one episode a week. And he said, I'm in. He said, I'll do one episode a week with you, but you already have a show, right? I did. It was called Direct Response Marketing. That's what I was branding for. And he said, why don't I come co-host your show? We'll rebrand it as us together. And I'll promote you do as many episodes as you want, but the one a week I do with you, I will promote to my following, which obviously is much more significant than mine. And then I said, I'm in. So we rebranded direct response marketing as Sharkpreneur. And I think we're on episode like 430. Wow. Yeah, we were number six last year on iTunes, number six to listen to last year. So super excited. That's awesome. You said a shock in all box. Can you explain that? 
Sure, that's another direct response marketing concept. So we had told him that there were, we had identified 12 holes in his As Seen on TV platform, marketing mm-hmm. holes that we could fill that we thought were costing him 20% of his sales. And we could fix them. And he said, you know, it's a billion dollar a year company. You're telling me you can make me $200 million a year more, right? And I said, gulp, it's a little sweat, a little sweat. I said, sure, Mr. Harrington, we can get you $200 million more. Uh, and he said, okay, I'm in. Send me, the, <laughs> send me your proposal. So instead of a proposal, yeah. we sent a giant, we sent a large aluminum briefcase. Yeah. It looks like a James Bond briefcase. <laughs> it had a DVD, it was holding a DVD player. Yeah. And the DVD player had a message from me to him, yeah. Mr. Harrington, walking him through the analysis of the funnel, what we thought was missing. It had all my books that it had a letter explaining everything. It had a PowerPoint deck printed out and bound. It had a ton of stuff in it. And then, of course, when you open it and the DVD player pops up and starts saying, like, your mission, should you choose to accept it, (laughs) it has a really cool shock and awe, hence the name, factor for him to go, oh, my God, this is like the coolest thing I've ever seen. No one's ever sent me anything like this. I'm in. That's cool. Sounds like uh, you've used that uh, tactic more than once. Yes, we send them out as often as we can, as long as we can fulfill We've got the bandwidth to fulfill the business because we get a high percentage of people who buy from getting something like that in the mail. So obviously the one you created for Kevin was very customized. Can you describe some of the other type of boxes that you sent out? Or is it, is it a kind of a, a similar playbook? I'm assuming you, you come up with different ideas. We do. So we've done them for lots of different clients, some much less fancy than that. Yeah. There's a personal injury law firm where it's a UPS envelope. It's not a fancy box. And there's a folder that holds a copy of their book and a whole bunch of material about whatever it is the person requested. So that would be like the smallest version that might cost 10 or 20 bucks. We have people who do them in large boxes where depending on how much material we can stuff in there, we've done DVD players, we've done flash drives, we've done iPads. Um, it depends on the size of the prospect. So if it's yeah. worth it, I'll spend more money. Yeah. And, you know, as a direct response person, what is your typical response rate? By the time you get to a point where you think the fits are good and, and you're willing to invest that money, what's the response rate on, on your box? So every, I don't even want to tell you because it, <laughs> it, it, your expectations will just be, will be set too high. So I'm yeah, going to yeah. lower it. Let's say if okay. you do the box right, yeah. At least half the people, okay. which is insanely high in, yeah. in marketing, at least half the people should respond, your phone should ring. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, obviously, you have the background, the skill to kind of feel that out. So obviously, you're qualifying that coming. If someone just starts randomly sending boxes, they're not going to no, get that. No, and it's too expensive to randomly send to me. You would not use this as prospecting. This is you. This is closing the deal. This is you've got a qualified prospect. You know they're interested. You know they want. You know you've got their attention. You know how much money they might spend with you, and therefore you could justify spending anywhere from twenty to two hundred dollars. That's what mine cost to Kevin was two hundred bucks. But I mean, we've had clients that have spent. We we had someone who wanted to get in front of Warren Buffett, so they spent a lot more than two hundred bucks to get through all of his le- levels of gatekeepers to actually land on his desk. Wow. Wow. And did that get a phone call? It did. Nice. It was a giant bowling pin because Warren (laughs) Buffett is actually an avid bowler. So we had to find that out. And we sent like it was like a five foot high bowling pin that was hollow in the middle where we put all the stuff. 
But obviously <laughs> that can't go on the top of a mail pile, right? The perceptionist yeah. can't throw it out. It's bigger than the garbage can. And where the <laughs> heck is this crazy bowling pin going to cut? So obviously it had to, he had to see it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's very cool. That's, it's simple, but I think uh, very effective. No, that's cool. Uh, how about, what are some of the marketing trends that uh, no one's talking about? I would say what's not getting talked enough about now is actually direct mail. Mm, okay. If you look at your direct, if you look in your mailbox, you're getting a whole lot less now. I used to, I have a weekly, a separate weekly show called Fix My Marketing. Yeah. And it's, we, we used to do two sections, Fix My Direct Mail and Fix My, fix my Online Ads. Yeah. And we've combined them lately into one. And I normally spend 80% of the time about online marketing because I used to get 20 or 30 pieces of direct mail selling me something in the mail every week. And I would critique them on air and give you lessons as to how you could do better. And now, I mean, literally, I think last week I got three. Mm-hmm. which makes no sense because everybody's home. <laughs> a lot of people are home. So there should be more mail cluttering up my mailbox. So it's a better time than ever to do direct mail because you have less competition. Mm. So, so if uh, someone was trying to get their head around that area, I mean, besides hiring a professional, I mean, we, what books should they read? The classics to get, get their head around a direct response and, and sort of direct mail. I've actually got a list of my 18 top books of all time because I've read thousands, but I'll give you a couple. Sure. So if you're asking about direct mail, I would say The Ultimate Sales Letter by Dan Kennedy. Mm-hmm. I would say Direct Response, No BS Direct Response Marketing by Dan Kennedy. Yeah. I would say Expert Secrets by Russell Brunson. Okay. And I'll give you The Ultimate Sales Machine by Chet Holmes. Uh, yeah, that's that's very cool. Yeah, Chet, uh, I had uh, Mitch uh, Russo on the show, so... He was talking about Chet. And he, I mean, obviously, Chet's extremely uh, underrated in the marketing world, I, I think. I, I would agree with that. It probably doesn't help that he's dead. Yeah, yeah that was very sad. So, I mean, from all the stuff you've done, what are you most proud of? <laughs> I'm proud that my wife got her book out. Oh, yeah. I'm proud that she is a, has over a million video, video views on Facebook. Wow. I'm proud that my daughter has a book, has got, got her book out. She's 11. Wow. And she got on TV, interviewed about her book. And she got 12, I think 13,000 Facebook followers. Wow. So I'm proud of both of them. And if you have to ask me about me, then I guess I'd say I'm proud of the awesome team we've built at marketdominationllc.com and how we've gotten to the point where we built the systems that a lot of our services can run without me. And I don't have to micromanage the process. And I'm getting to the point of where we're thinking now, I'm no longer worried about day-to-day operations. I'm worried about scale. And then once we automate that part, I'm too young to just play golf, but (laughs) we'll see what happens. Do you have any hobbies? I am a martial artist and I am a magician. Okay. Let's start with the martial arts. What what style or... I am a... Yep, I'm a black belt in Krav Maga, which is the Israeli army's martial art. Wow. Okay. And uh, the magician side, what, what got you into that? I was eight years old and I was trying, I got into, I was getting, I, I was, I learned that the Egyptian god of death, his name was Seth. Okay. <laughs> so that got me into, and it was set, but it was close enough. So I okay. got into this occult phase of witches and wizards. And I was trying to 
I, I got a charcoal and the candle and the bell and the book. And I was trying to summon Satan in my basement because I wanted him to place a curse on the kid who was bullying me. Yeah. And he didn't show up Satan, but yeah. my mother did. And she's like, I can't, I was trying to, and she's like, I can't believe you got charcoal all over my carpet. Go do this in the basement, you know, where I can clean the concrete floor. Like, what are you doing? And then uh, my dad got and heard about it and he was not happy with me. So they decided if I was going to be, spiritual in this way he got me a book a deck of tarot cards and said you know you could tell the future that way you don't need to summon anybody and upset your mother so i went there was a store two blocks from my grandmother's house it was a magic store Mm. but they also sold halloween stuff and they also sold other stuff so i went there there was no internet back then so i went there to buy a book on how to read my tarot cards how Mm. i could act because there was no instructions so i went to go buy a book and when i walked in the guy behind the counter was doing a magic trick for someone who was buying it. He was showing them, this is what you're going to learn how to do if you buy this. And I saw it and I said, oh my God, that is cool. Forget the tarot cards. I want that. And that was, that was the first trick I ever bought. And I became a professional magician like less than a year later and started doing birthday parties. Wow. And it's what got me into marketing because I wanted to learn how to grow my magic business. Really? Okay. How, how big did you grow your magic business? I, at one point, I was the busiest, most expensive magician in Western New York where I live. Wow. That's, that's very cool. So you like, describe like the, the type of shows you were doing. I was doing kids' birthday parties. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So, what, so you, you took up uh, marketing to, to promote your, your magic business. What can magic teach you about running a good business? That's a great question. So I would say you have to surprise and delight your customers, right? Because magic, you don't know what's going to happen. That's Mm. part of the magic of it. If you know, if you saw the same trick twice, you wouldn't be as impressed the second time. So I would say you have to surprise and delight your customers. You have to show up in a way that nobody else does. You can't be boring. You have to know that sometimes you have to practice for the mistakes. So no trick goes perfect every time, no matter how many times you practice it. So I learned to practice for what could go wrong so that when it went wrong, I was prepared to handle it and it didn't screw up everything. So I would say those would be some of the biggest principles I've taken from magic. Wow. So you're, you're practicing your magic and you've obviously seen a lot of magic shows and studied uh, the greats. What's the, uh, the best and the coolest trick you've ever seen? Can you describe that? Wow, I've got to narrow it down. Okay. Just give me what, what pops into your head. Like, what do you, wow, how do they do that? Okay, so I'll give you three. Okay. One you'll have seen, two you'll have never heard of. Okay, okay. One would be David Copperfield flying. Okay. Which is awesome. Yeah. And that is a big stage illusion. And then I'm a, I would say my two favorite close-up magicians are Friends of mine who are nationally recognized magicians, Garrett Thomas and Joshua Jay. Uh-huh. They've been on, uh, Joshua Jay's been on The Tonight Show. He's with Jimmy Fallon. He's been on Masters of Illusion. He's been on every TV magic show. Sure. And then uh, Garrett designs tricks for people like David Blaine. Yeah. So they have, I mean, they do things close up that like fries my brain. <laughs> I would say Garrett does a trick where I will not do it justice explaining it. I know we're running out of time. Sure. But literally where his driver's license shows up in your wallet. Oh. Right. That's what you're at. Like yeah. literally while you're holding it, like you're holding his driver's license. 
and suddenly it's in your wallet and you're holding your they switch it's crazy i can't even explain it right because it just your brain is like huh what the heck just happened so i think that's one of my favorite tricks of garrett's and then joshua J does did an amazing mind reading trick with jimmy fallon on the tonight show again i won't do it justice but it had Jimmy avoided, you know, getting bit by a snake because like, it was really, it was really cool. If you go Google it, you'll find it. And I got to give you Adam Wilbur, who's also been on Penn and Teller School Us, as has Joshua J. They both won. Go check out all three of them. Awesome. No, that's great. So, I mean, to get a sense, I mean, to make marketing and business look easy, you got to put a ton of hours in. Obviously, to make magic look easy, you got to put a ton of hours What's the back end of a magic trick look like? How many hours? What type of preparation to make just that, you know, one minute thing or, or thing look just effortless? I told you I'd have to kill you. <laughs> so I don't know the answer to that because every trick is different. Yeah. There, and, and again, you've got to think, I've been doing it for over 30 years. Yes. So a trick might take me 10 minutes, 20 mm. minutes to master. But if I had tried it 30 years ago, it might have taken months. Uh, there are tricks. It depends on the level of difficulty. Like there's stuff that takes months to learn. There's stuff like you'll see if you watch Fool Us, Allison Hanning will always ask, you know, how long did you work on this trick? And sometimes they're like, it took me five years to get it to where it is today. It just depends on the trick. Some are harder than others. Wow. Very but cool. if you'd like to attract some customers like Magic, go check out marketdominationllc.com. Perfect. Now, is there anything that uh, I didn't ask you, but uh, should have? I'm sure there is, but I can't think of it right now. You asked some questions that no one's ever asked before, and I've done hundreds of these. So awesome, awesome interview. Okay. Well, thank you, Seth. Thanks for having me. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.